that was the point that I got involved with Extinction Rebellion. And there was a small group of us as an art group that started to then concoct plans together that um, would become what you know of now as the sort of art output of Extinction Rebellion. Hey, welcome to Green Canvas. My name is Toby Carpenter, and this podcast is all about creative individuals helping to tackle the climate and environmental crisis through their work. We'll be talking to a wide range of creative practitioners, from designers working with sustainable materials to artists and photographers exploring global warming. We'll learn more about their work, how they use their skill sets for positive environmental change, and also what tips they have for you to utilize your own creativity and help the world build the sustainable future our planet needs. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy and find Green Canvas useful. Our guest today is Clive Russell, a graphic designer and a central part of the team behind Extinction Rebellion's brand identity, design toolkit, and cover of the official handbook, This Is Not A Drill. Since 2018, Extinction Rebellion's iconic font type, color scheme, and striking graphics have helped catapult them into a global movement with hundreds of thousands of followers across the world. Along with co-founder Charlie Waterhouse, Clive Russell runs This Ain't Rock and Roll, a full-service design agency that creates work for culture and social and ethical causes. Their work has been exhibited at institutions like the British Museum, the Design Museum, Tate Modern, and the VNA. If you'd like to see some of the projects Clive's worked on, we have a few links in the show description that you might like to check out. And so without further ado, here's our conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I wanted to start by asking you, what's a brief timeline of your journey and career as a graphic designer and creative so far? Okay, well, I mean, I'm quite old. So I'm the wrong side of 50, but only by a year. So I started some time ago. And uh, so I come from a, a small town called Northampton, and I grew up in a sort of working class community there. The expectation generally was to uh, not really go on to college, but to go and get some really crap job somewhere. Uh, fortunately, my parents uh, had better things in mind. Um, I wanted to be a baker, by the way. Um, which actually nowadays, if you know, if I was working at Dusty Knuckle, that might actually be quite a good living. But um, but anyway, I went to art college, and back then, uh, college was free, and in fact, we got a, a grant, um, an amazing thing where they actually paid us to live in a house, which is quite incredible. <laughs> um, so I, I and I graduated in '91, which for in design terms was quite a bad time to graduate because uh, there was a financial crash at the time. So there wasn't much work around, which actually was quite good because it meant you did things like go and live in a squat um, or you and you went on the dole and you met lots of interesting people. So um, that's how my sort of career in design started out, meeting lots of interesting people, living in unusual places and um, talking to, and, well, opening my mind a little bit. And, uh, and I ended up working in publishing many years later. Uh, so I worked for Pearson, um, which owned, at the time owned Penguin. And uh, so that's where I started out. Then I ended up in advertising and branding, working for numerous different agencies. And till I was about uh, in my late 30s, I realized um, that this wasn't actually a, a very good career, <laughs> um, largely because you're working with very amoral people at best, immoral people often. So. Um, with a friend, I we, we sort of set up This Ain't Rock and Roll, um, which was about 11 years ago now, now, 12 years. And uh, 
And since then, we've sort of been revisiting maybe um, parts of our earlier working life where we perhaps uh, do less work for money, more work for principle, but also uh, working with really interesting individuals on interesting projects, of which obviously Extinction Rebellion is one. Um, Before that, there was the Brixton Pound and the Brixtopia project, which sort of did lots of work around introducing the idea of how bad economics is to an audience which doesn't really understand how bad economics is. And uh, so it's been interesting. And Extinction Rebellion is is the latest bit, but I'm already working on other stuff now. So, so what's the what is the ethos behind your agency, the Saint Rock and Roll, in your own in your own words? I think what personally I've always been interested in trying to change the world. Now, what that means in a design sense, perhaps, is uh, is slightly different. But as a designer, you know, if each person in each discipline they're good at tries to change the world, then actually you begin to shift the world. And so from a design point of view, what I'm what I'm good at is is communication and good at communicating in hopefully an interesting and vibrant way, not a boring and horrible way. Um, So it's sort of uh, so the the idea of the same rock and roll was to sort of pursue that thought, really that we could take the best of ourselves and try and use the best of our abilities and disciplines to begin to sort of crack some of the problems that we face today. And how did this desire to have a, a positive social impact develop? Is this something you, you felt throughout your, your 20s and 30s or was it something that really just hit home in your mid to late 30s, as you mentioned, when you studied the St. Rock and Roll? How did this desire develop? I think it was there at the beginning. I mean, inequality is a big thing. It wasn't lost on me that uh, many other people enjoyed a lot easier time than I did when I was trying to to work my way up. And um, I look at the world and I I think, well, this isn't very good. People should have equal, um, the the, the ability to to, to operate on an equal level to everyone else, Um, whether that be in our, our UK society, or whether it's in a worldwide society, it's sort of it just feels wrong that some people have an awful lot and some people have very little, um, and I think most people feel that way deep down. And throughout your your twenties and thirties, were you committing time outside your profession to these ethical causes, or or was it something that you only started doing and it was from a professional standpoint, and that's what happened in your late thirties? Um, no, I suppose. Um, I've always had involvement with various um, different groups, but um, in my later thirties, I had more of the abilities to make um, make those sort of things more worthwhile. You know, all of the work we did for Extinction Rebellion was for free. All of the work we did for Brixton Pound was for free. Um, so, you know, that idea of giving away time for nothing is really important to me. But when I was younger, it was really difficult to do because. I, 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 I didn't have the settled life I have now, effectively. And this is, you know, this is a worry for younger designers. If I mean, that I, I, I feel for younger designers is that, you know, the ability to do things is often massively restrained by what society places upon you. So if you're leaving college with a 9,000, however, it probably won't, 9,000 is probably too little. If you're, if you're leaving with a massive debt, then that hanging around your neck is not good at all. And, and and it's wrong as well, because actually that debt probably won't be repaid and shouldn't be repaid. 
um, that actually this is just taxpayers' money and this is a good investment for the future anyway. But um, to hang that round a young person's neck is really bad. And and I think, you know, so it took me probably those that amount of time to get to a level where I felt financially secure and I'm not rich by any standard uh, enough to think about doing things for free, which is pretty bad. That's like, you know, effectively I've wasted 20 years of my working life. Well, no, probably not that long. You know, something like 15, maybe 10, 15 years. That's quite bad. And so how did you get started with your work with Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, so that, that sort of started um, with, a, with a smaller campaign called Stop Killing Londoners, um, which was aimed at Sadiq Khan, which, uh, when you look at it, has bears uh, startling um, similarities to some of the tactics of Extinction Rebellion. So first of all, the first road we blocked was Marleybone Road, um, which is a very busy road as you well know, and we were blocking sort of near Madame Two Swords to give you a more exact location. And we, so the idea of this was to put some pressure on Sadiq Khan because uh, Sadiq Khan was seen as being a person who may actually shift and do something. So it's often important to choose your targets very carefully because if you're maybe targeting Boris Johnson, he might be less likely to shift because he cares a lot less than anyone else. Um, so Sadiq at least might might care, and so and it was based on the the fact that uh, pollution in London is way over the the legal limit. Effectively, we are breaking WHO regulations, and uh, so we block roads. And that began with well, actually, you know, to block a road, what do you need? Well, you need a graphic representation. So a friend of of mine, Claire Farrell, who I've been working with on one of the projects I mentioned earlier, Brickstopia sort of contacted me saying, oh, we need some, we need a big banner. Uh, we need some graphics on it uh, to block a road. It needs to be seven metres wide and blah, blah, blah. And oh, by the way, can you pop down and just sort of, you know, come and see what it's like? And I ended up going down there and had to join in because there wasn't many of us. And that was sort of my first time I met Roger Hallam, who was one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion. And after sort of several months of doing Stop Killing Londoners, you know, it became apparent to me that if we did this a bit better, we might have a better net result. And as a group, we kind of realised that. And anyway, Roger went away. And then a few months later, he sort of said, I've got this other idea. And he said, what's more, I've got a bit more time that people can sort of try and shape things a bit better. And so we met at our old office in Borough and he pitched this talk to us that was uh we're heading for extinction what are you going to do about it which at the time extinction rebellion the name didn't even exist and kind of that was the point that i got involved with extinction rebellion and there was a small group of us as an art group that started to then concoct plans together that um, would become what you know of now as the sort of art output of extinction rebellion and so what was the creative process for the development? How did it exactly transpire? Because I know you, you developed the, the font and the design toolkit for Extinction Rebellion. Did you approach it in the, the same way you'd, you'd approach any other font and design toolkit or branding identity kit? Or was it quite a unique process? It was, um, it was a bit of both. Um, there was, you know, obviously a lot of my past experience came into play, but um, there was sort of four of us that were collaborating and it was very clear that we needed to create something that could be used by anybody. So your average um, design set of design guidelines can probably only be used by a designer. 
and is quite restrictive. And this needed to go outside of a studio space and onto the streets. So there had to be direct printing thought about. And there had to be, you know, how does that then manifest itself online? And and what if we do do it this way and that way? So there's lots of to and fro, and we look back at different movements of the past. And uh, working with Miles, Claire, and Charlie, we sort of started to see these sort of little windows of opportunity. So, for instance, the font um, I designed was was taken from a wood type that was found um, by Miles. Um, that then was readjusted by me, that then was placed against Futura, condensed, and then reworked again. So it was a lot of reworking, working again, and reworking, but working in a you know, very quick time, actually. So you know, by the time, so three months later, we'd kind of done most of the foundational work, including designing the font, which is quite a lot to do in three months. But, um, but yeah, it was interesting. So there's lots of different sort of takes on things. So the idea was essentially to make sure we could give everything away and it was no longer reliant on us. And that was really important. And not many designers think that way, really. And what were the main visual influences behind the identity and why were those influences the influences? So um, a massive influence was the situationist and Paris 68. But the influence on that is the way they gave it away. But although they didn't actually give it away, they, they created it as a small art group. But uh, we took the sort of name art group from that. So they're an influence in their sort of practical attitude and their sort of uh, revolutionary nature. Visually, influences Bauhaus, William Morris and the arts and craft movements. That's very clear in sort of Miles's woodcuts that can be seen coming through. How can we connect craft to design again? That was one of the things we were thinking about. How do we reconnect these two things that have become disconnected? Design has become this commercial output and craft is still this non-commercial output. Well, we wanted to rejoin them because you know that's something the Bauhaus did back in 1919 and the arts and crafts movement before that in the 19th century. So rejoining those, looking at the suffragettes, and their colour scheme, how they used very deliberate colours, purple, green and white, and used them all the time. How can we expand on that? Maybe have more colours. So and I looked at, you know, one of my personal favourites is Eduardo Parlossi. So if you if you take the um, XR colour scheme down to Tottenham Court Road and go down in the underground, you might see there's a few similarities with, with the uh, mural down there. But uh, so sort of you know, but also simple techniques as well, making sure whatever we did was easy to replicate. So if you needed to print it out of this or that or the other, then you could and it would still be recognisable. And what was the, the strategic thinking behind the identity? I watched a, a panel discussion that you were on, which was really interesting with some of the other co-founders of Extinction Rebellion. And I read a few articles or interviews that you'd done previously, and I read that you didn't want it to look like other environmental movements or the traditional environmental organization why exactly was that what was the the whole thinking that led to the identity on a, on a very glib and personal level the reason i didn't want it to look like anything because it all of those things had failed effectively they'd failed to touch people they'd failed to you know they'd failed to get people involved and i think you know i mean as much as everyone you know i'm not going to have a go at the hippies they're lovely people and all of that but the the problem with movements like that is that they're elitist 
and, and they push people away effectively. So the idea was to create something that everyone could feel that they could join. Um, whether that was successful or not, I can't say. But, um, but also to explode onto the scene. So it had to look like nothing else that had come out of that eco space. Using the symbol that was created in 2011 by ESP meant that there was kind of something that people had seen around was on their periphery of their vision but they'd perhaps not been thrust into their face. So that was part of the reason of using something that pre-existed. But also its strong geometry meant that it, it looked very not like eco-space and very not like something a hippie would do. So I suppose there's sort of, it, it's always trying to learn from the past to a degree because that's, that's the only thing we have to go on effectively. And are you continually, along with Charlie, do you continually work on Extinction Rebellion from a design point of view, even after designing the, the design toolkit? Um, no, not, not, not anymore. Um, the idea is that other designers will interpret it and reinterpret it now. Um, so I'm there. I help people, uh, mentor people if, if, if necessary, but often not. So it's kind of the, the point of this was genuinely to give it away. And, and if I was to carry on doing it, it would just become like my project. And that's not the idea of it. It's the idea it needs to grow through many hands, not, not my hands. And did you also design This Is Not A Drill? Um, yeah, yeah, we did that with... Um, so, I mean, you can see the font and everything. Um, Killing the Penguin was good. Yeah, Jim, Jim um, Stobart, the uh, creative director at Penguin, managed to convince Penguin it was the right thing to do. So I've got to take my hat off to him. But yeah, I mean, really enjoyable. They're great people to work with. And it's really important, I think, for for the word to get out through. I mean, because we could have published this ourselves, obviously. And we could have got funding and published it. But to have it distributed by Penguin, be associated with the Penguin name, plus also the fact that Penguin um, changed completely the way they bought their papers. So they had to repurchase all their papers, which if you know anything about publishing is quite a big deal. So it was was great to see because it's almost like Penguin giving the stamp of approval to Extinction Rebellion, which was quite important as well. And they did a great editorial job to boot. And and in terms of your your personal environmental consciousness, when did that really develop? Yeah, it's bizarre, really. I, I've never driven. I've never had a car. I've never learned to drive. And you know, I don't have a particularly carbon-filled lifestyle. But I must say, it was never really deliberate and I do wonder sometimes that there was something at the back of my mind that was telling me that 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 all of that was wrong I've never bought loads of stuff I've never you know I've never needed lots of money so I do I do wonder whether subconsciously I've always felt that and I think this might be true of a lot of people that it's a kind of waking up process to the fact that things aren't quite right and uh, but actually you know Looking at a younger me, if you, a thirty-year-old me, I would not have talked about, um, you know, climate change or anything like that. But at the same time, I still wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have been jetting around the world equally. So it's sort of it's strange, and yeah, it's it's a very it's, it's sort of something we all sort of need to think about about when we look outside our window, how we actually feel about the world we're now viewing. Because I do remember when I was younger. There was a. If you went on a bike ride, you'd get a mouthful of flies. Whereas now you go out cycling, and and you don't get a mouthful of flies. So there's obviously, you know, in my lifetime, there's been a massive change. 
And I think there has been an acceleration in the loss of the planet, I guess. I wanted to ask a, a couple of general questions. And I read that you mentioned before that within the design community that we've lost our connection or the, the connection within the design community with activism. Why exactly do you think that's happened over time? I, I think because um, of some of the pressures we talked about earlier, there's lots of financial pressures. There's lots of, uh, I think, that, and there's also a, a definite desire by the mainstream to say there is only one way of, of going forward. And that way of going forward is this extreme form of capitalism that is about growth and economic growth above all else. And anything that steps outside of that isn't valuable. So you are only valued, you are only valued by the amount of money you have. You're only valued by the, the job title you have and all of that sort of nonsense. And actually, you know, in the past that, that wasn't true. And, and I think, you know, when you look at people like um, William Morris, for instance, he was a total firebrand. He was a socialist. He he went out there, preached his word, and and often, you know, risked total, you know, arrest, all of those sort of things, and and yet was able to also come up with this sort of unique take on design and unique take on how things should be made. That 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 also backed up what he was saying. I, I think we've been forced away from that as designers. I don't think it's necessarily any individual's fault. I think it's just the way that industry has gone. We're more and more design is subservient to selling things and producing things to be sold rather than having bigger ideas about the outcomes of society. And do you think there's a, a general frustration within the creative community that they're, they're internally frustrated by this the economic system that forces them to do that? Do you think there's a general frustration there or do you think that most designers and most creatives don't mind just going along with the system and they're happy producing commercially driven creative work? I, I, think, um, I think it's a bit of both, but I think from my experience, the designers and uh, creatives I've met are gen generally quite frustrated and would like to do things that are closer to their own principles. So I actually do think that the creative community is largely coerced into doing things rather than... And, and, and you look at most design agencies, they're not actually owned by designers anymore. Most of them are owned by um, accountants, effectively. I mean, the wonderful Martin Sorrell for, is a great example of of the sort of shitbag that you have uh, uh, owning design agencies these days. So it's sort of, you know, it's sort of, that, that's, that must be massively frustrating because these are basically bean counters and they're only looking at the bottom line. They're not looking at uh, creative output and they're certainly not looking at the damage that creative output can cause. I'm interested to hear a bit more about your, the individual influences that have influenced the way you approach your design work and your creative work in, in general, maybe your the influences from the design world, the advertising world, the art directors that you look up to and you've really taken from and drawn from? I, I suppose, bizarrely, um, there's not many, many um, people in design world I've taken a lot of. The, the biggest inspiration or people whose work I like, uh, Milton Glazier is someone whose work I love. A lot of the people... Uh, I've drawn inspiration from a, a, a very much from the past. So a, a movement that I've always been in love with is the Dada movement, um, you know, from Zurich in, in uh, just after the First World War. 
uh, design-wise, I think about, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky to have worked with some some really good designers. So it's sort of, I, I've, I used to, you know, I've done a lot of collaboration. I enjoy collaborating with other people. So it's sort of, um, so that's that's something that's always been a big part of what I do. So I do actually like, rather than working alone, I actually like, much prefer working with other people and having lots of uh, really fruitful arguments and, uh, and and discussions. So it's sort of, uh, I'm just trying to think about, uh, there's all, all of my, all of the designers I really like from the past and who I've looked look up to are sort of um, very obvious ones like Alan Fletcher. I really like his work and um, it's sort of, you know, anyone who communicates clearly, but in a, in a really interesting fashion. Is it sort of always gets a thumbs up from me? Uh, so yeah, it's quite weird. I've always looked outside of design for my influences, or outside of commercial design, I suppose. And I, I'm a big reader, so I love reading books. What sort of books? Just about anything. Um, you know, I'm terrible. I, I go all over the hockey. It's sort of uh, I used to go into bookshops and choose a subject, and then I'd choose the book that uh, with the most interesting cover on it in that subject. And then I'd read that. So it's sort of, uh, you know, um, books that have really... So Albert Camus is sort of a major influence, I guess, when we're talking about reading. If I'm, if, if we're talking about reading one person, George Orwell, obviously, um, massive, read loads of his stuff. But yeah, again, it's sort of... But then, then it goes completely wonky. I've, I've read all sorts of strange things. But, you know, that's, that's part of... Part of design is being a bit of a magpie. And looking around and and finding those interesting things and trying to join the dots between interesting things, because actually all of all of a culture's output, it it doesn't come out in one thing. It comes out in many different things. Uh, so it will come out in songs. It will come out in in the design of the time and all of that. And a lot of that, you know, fashion attempts to sort of grab that a little bit, but invariably it fails because uh, it's always slightly behind the times and uh, thankfully um, you know and, and its influences are almost solely visual rather than uh, anything else but yeah it's really hard I wonder you know I mean with designers I wonder if any designer can say that there's any one person that sort of uh, that influences them and if you were to give one book to a young designer, what book would it be? That's a, that's a really hard question. I suppose the one the one I always think about is Homage to Catalonia, George Orwell. But also one book that everyone should read is uh, 5,000 Years of Debt by David Graeber. David Graeber actually latterly has been a big influence. He died uh, in September, but uh, I was lucky enough to do some work with him and his partner, Nika. And... Uh, He's a he's a he 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 was a great mind, a really great mind. So your so your gift to a designer wouldn't be a book about design. It'd be a book about thinking. Thinking is way more important than designing. Any any anyone can learn techniques, but not anyone can learn to think. Critical thinking is the most important thing. If you were to go into an art or design school, what would you do to help shift a more eco-conscious approach with students or approach where they they really take the, the social impact of the design work more seriously. What would you say to them or what would you do to, to help them see their, their craft in a more profound way? I think one of the things that I would like 
art schools to do in general is to connect more with that sort of Bauhaus thinking of multidisciplinary approaches. So not to have any form of boundary between architecture, art, design, craft, pottery, you know, start, start actually mixing everything up a bit more again, a bit like used to be done at foundation level, but carrying that through into all areas of, of the art school so that um, people and people learn more about what one another does and how thinking can affect the work, not, not the, the actual processes affecting the work. So keep people as open-minded as technique-wise as possible um, so that the concentration is, is, is on the thinking. From an eco point of view, I think the materials that are being used now uh, and the materials available to be used now are beginning to become very, very interesting. You know, I was on a call recently with, uh, I've forgotten her name, but uh, she runs a company called Matter, um, M-A-T-T-E-R.org. And she works with lots of different materials and looks at materials in a different way. And I think lots of that needs to happen. Um, we start to need, we need to start to reimagine how we approach the physical manifestations of, of what we do. And there's never been a better time to actually do that. We, we have a really good understanding. A lot of this stuff is bubbling away underneath and needs to rise to the surface a lot more. Are there any materials that come first to mind or that you might have learned about in your recent call with? I think I know who you're talking about, the person who founded Matter as well. She wrote a really good book about materials. I think, I mean, I think the, you know, it's fine, find that book by her, I would say. But uh, yeah, one of the things I, um, F Fernando, and I'm going to just check his, Fernando Laposa, I, I did a lecture with him recently. He's a Mexican artist. In, he's based in London. He'd uh, spent his youth going to this area of Mexico where they grew corn and sold it. And uh, he went back there um, to find it devastated because uh, they'd only, they'd started growing just one form of corn there instead of the form, the, the, the native corns that came from there. And, and he thought, oh my God, you know, the, the, all the men had gone from the village, they'd gone away to, to work elsewhere, and, and the place was on its knees. And uh, so he worked with them over several years to, um, to create something new based on something old. So they reintroduced the old corns they, they used to grow, um, so they had the product, but also they started making furniture out of the rind from the corn. So they created all these amazing, um, colourful pieces of furniture. And uh, so now there's a, a cabinet making workshop there, plus a, a, a corn producing area as well. Um, so I think wonderful success stories that are based in the locale. They're, they're, they're there, they're out there, there's people doing it, but you just don't often hear about it. And as you as you've learned more about over the years, as you've learned more about environmentalism and different eco friendly approaches to to work and life, have there been any practices, specific practices, when it comes to maybe your creative process or even outside your your creative process that you've started implementing into your way of working or life to help you live a more waste free or eco friendly life yeah i suppose um bizarrely a bit of what we're doing now uh, working you know not traveling anywhere at all is sort of actually does you know my footprint now is is practically zero so it's you just know, austin of, <laughs> yeah, it is it's just austin <laughs> and 
So it's sort of, you know, that that is, you know, before that point, you know, even even if you get a train, even if you get a bus, you are sort of doing something. But I don't I don't think, you know, I mean, individually, there's very little that you can do, actually. And we can only achieve meaningful changes actually by doing it collectively. So and in, in point of view of maybe Dalston is doing it as a community. And, and I haven't I haven't done anything in the community of Dalston recently to to try and raise any awareness of that sort of so maybe I should do some of that. I've got we've got the curve garden in Dalston. Maybe I should do something there. The yeah, curve garden Dawson's great. I love that yeah. place. Yeah, I've been there for so long for ages. <laughs> um, it's open. It's and, open again now. Um it's open now. Yeah, and the bar's open. So Okay, cool. <laughs> and is there any advice you'd give to people in creative fields who, who want to use their skill set to raise awareness for environmental causes specifically? Yeah, I think um, one is is sort of try try and stick to the things you want to do. Yeah, and that would be advice I'd have given to my younger self as well. It's sort of, you know, try and try and think about the things you want to do as opposed to the things that people want you to do. You know, from a practical point of view, um, being involved with Extinction Rebellion is a good start. But also there's lots of other things happening. There are so many different things happening. Um, it's very difficult to keep keep up to speed on them, to be honest. And I think actually the the younger generations coming through college now are more eco-aware than any generations before them, which gives me great hope. So, you know, I would say all of, all of the young designers, get out there, do something, and you can make people like me um, extinct, effectively. <laughs> and is there, I don't have any other questions that, that I've written down or off the top of my head, but is there anything I've missed, any last words you'd like to say to listeners? No, no, I mean, it's been great. And uh, I think that making myself extinct is quite a good way to end it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Green Canvas. In two weeks, we'll be back with the next episode. In the meantime, if you think this is a podcast a friend of yours will enjoy, we would love for you to share it with them or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us know what you think and others to find the show. And feel free to get in touch with us anytime at hello at greencanvaspodcast.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the episode or any recommendations and questions you may have for future guests. Thank you again, and I hope you have a great day.